Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow. Thank you so much for coming to Comedy Republic today. Uh, can we please get an extra round of applause for my dad, John Verhoeven? Wow. Thank you very much. And uh, this is our very first matinee. Uh, matinee uh, is French. Matin means day and A means... What the fuck are you talking about, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, how many people here have uh, never listened to the podcast before, by the way? Just a show of hands. One. Oh, good luck. Oh. <laughs> Well, we did a show here last night, and things got extremely weird very fast. So uh, we thought we'd kick things off in a very gentle manner. Um, but basically, we were sitting at breakfast this morning, and I was having sausage and eggs. Dad was having an omelette. And uh, Dad was watching me eat, and he said, this reminds me of a story that I want to tell on stage. Mm. As Paul lowered the sausage into his <laughs> mouth... Wait, I just lowered it into my mouth. I no, was... but that's I'm creating a vibe, <laughs> sort of set the scene. Sure. And it was at that moment where I recalled a story when I was in the New South Wales Police Force back in the 1980s. Now, whenever we arrested someone, we'd bring them back to the station, we'd put them in the dock, and you would fingerprint them. And one of the questions you would ask the person in custody was, do you have any scars, tattoos, or distinguishing marks that may assist us in further identification because what happens in a serious crime particularly a sexual assault for example the victim will sometimes get might not see the face the face may be shrouded but may see for example a tattoo now back in the 80s i mean i don't know many people that don't have tattoos nowadays but back in the 80s they were relatively uncommon there were two types of people generally that had and i'm i'm, I'm making a sweeping statement here but it was sailors and criminals. Uh, and some sailors that had done time, they had sailor tattoos and jail tattoos. And jail tattoos are fascinating. In fact, one of the classic jail tattoos, I don't know whether anyone's ever seen this, was ACAC. Has anyone ever heard of that? All coppers are C-U-N-T-S. That was a classic. And occasionally you'd get a, a hardcore crim who would pull his lower lip down and it would say fuck you, or something like that. And he'd, he'd, it was like exciting. He'd, he'd only show it to certain people. But, you, you know, and so this particular um, evening at North Sydney Police Station, this guy, without asking when I'd sort of said, oh, do you have any unusual features, he, he dropped his pants. And he showed me something that was so traumatic. It wasn't that his penis was massive or, t or tiny. It was that he'd cut it in two. Okay. Oh, and I see. Where the sausage, right. Yeah. So this is... I mean, I'm not saying that whenever I see a sausage, I think of this story. <laughs> but um, because... Well, there are, there are lots of weird things that I think when I see things. Um, but this particular story, ladies and gentlemen, is, is, is... You can tell by the way I'm sort of... You know, it's freaking me out. Just thinking about it, it's sort of bringing back terrible, terrible memories. But I'm going to go through in some detail because this particular gentleman... He delighted in describing in great detail the process of cutting his penis. Just quickly, uh, are there any children in the audience today? 
No, seriously, are there any like kids in there? Like kids, I'm talking like kids. There shouldn't be. There shouldn't be. No. All right. Uh, but if there are. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, right. anyway, so what he did, he he dipped his penis in hot wax. He, he, this is hardcore sadomasochism, and I don't want any of you to go home and try this uh, because it'll, it, it could end badly. So he would probably... I'm just trying to think whether it was flaccid during the process. That I didn't glean from him. But he, would, he then had a razor blade, and he was very, very particular. He knew about the urethra, which is that part of the penis that delivers urine and other things. Oh, God. Uh, this is where this whole thing's going, by the way. This, this, this is the... This is the level of the show. It's like lunchtime oh. and we're just like bifurcated penises. Hi. Uh. No, but, it, but it, it, it's quite fascinating because he couldn't carry out the procedure in one, you know, in one go. So he, he went to one side of his, uh, of his penis and he cut down. And then, of course, he could cut a little way. Then he'd dip it in wax, let it heal. And this process went on for a long, long time. And he ended up creating a bifurcated penis from the tip to his scrotum. So it looked like that, if you can imagine. But, but on one side of my finger, the urethra, it was like a vein and it sort of was sticking out and that enabled him to pee. So it was handy in a way, you could tuck one half, but it gets worse, it gets far, far worse because then what he did, he then drilled holes in his, the end of his two penises. I didn't mean to look at you when I said penises, <laughs> but, uh, but you are wearing a beanie and that's sort of, yeah. And he, he, uh, he was circumcised. That I, that I can assure you, assure you. So he then put two D-bolts, one D-bolt through each half of his penis, which created... And he used to vary the D-bolts in terms of weight to make his penises longer. He then, the day that I saw him, he was wearing a belt. And what he'd done, he'd pulled one half of his penis up and attached it with the D-bolt to the belt here and he pulled the other half up to attach it there. So that is what I was confronted with. And then, to, to, as a sort of a, sort of the, the cherry, the icing on the cake, <laughs> he then put a massive D-bolt through his scrotum. Okay, so that, these are sort of some unusual experiences that, that police, in their, in their not day-to-day work, hopefully, but <laughs> and, it's, and it's, it's, it's quite surreal, and, and I imagine you're among the first people ever to hear that. Now, uh, w- Jesus, this has happened before. So we haven't done a live show in almost three years. This is our first time back on stage in a while. We're very happy to be back. And just before lockdown, we actually uh, had a daytime gig where we horrified a room full of unsuspecting people with a similarly penis-centric story. Jesus Christ. (laughs) I just had an idea. Um, So, Dad, uh, we had been asked by... Our podcast is distributed by a lovely company called Acast. They published a show. And they asked us if we could go along to Nova, uh, the radio station. And there was a room full of, like, executives. And it's the middle of the day. And Dad, in an attempt to provide some local flavour, because we were in Surrey Hills at the time in Sydney, Dad said, oh, actually, I know of a crime that happened just around the corner from here. And everyone goes, oh, yeah, cool. And they're all eating lunch. It was like a big thing of Danishes. (laughs) And then, Dad, you told a story about a guy Mm. called The Mutilator. The Mutilator. Has anyone in this room heard of The Mutilator? This is really good. (laughs) This this story is really fucked up. (laughs) And I say that with great sincerity. It's, it's one of the worst stories. In fact, well, for those of you that love and listen to our magnificent podcast, um, you know where we go in these stories. But this story is horrific. And I took a photograph because I've gained access to the Australian Police Journal. I used to subscribe... I mean, I, as a police officer, I used to get the journal. It's, it's fairly sort of censored today, but if you go back through the annals, it took me over two weeks to get... Sort of, they had to go through my past to give me permission to rejoin and get access to the to the magazines. But if you go back, back, back into the into the early days of the sort of the annals of the police journals in Australia and they go back to the nineteen forties, there's no censorship. The photographs are uncensored. They are fucking horrific. And I've always known about the mutilator. And we had this room with maybe forty executives. They're having lunch and I start the story. Now when I told them the story I thought that there were only three victims. There were actually five. Now, this story, this is technically speaking, Australia's first serial killer. 
and it happened in the very early 1960s in Sydney. There are two guys, they're, they're, they're intoxicated, they're, they're homeless, they are, it's raining, they're seeking refuge and they hide under a shed in Sydney near, near the Sydney Opera House back in the 1960s. They take cover and as they crawl underneath the building they see the shape of a man and he's glistening and they assumed that he had been you know, it, it, it had been raining, they thought he was just taking cover. But then when they got closer, they realised that in fact his body was covered in blood. And upon closer inspection, they realised that his T-shirt or his shirt had been pulled up above his nipples. Now this is significant. And his pants had been removed. And they looked down into his, the, into his groin and they realised that his penis... Now, this is, I don't want you to think this is a penis-centric evening. <laughs> but his penis and scrotum had been surgically removed. Now, it became a, a crime scene. And the police were obviously very, very concerned because they'd never seen anything quite like this. The next day, they got police divers to go into the harbour and they found a penis and scrotum in the water. Now, I'm going to read to you, because this defies description. There was something tattooed on the penis. Ready for this? And I only found this out this morning, so it's, it's, it's really fucked up. <coughs> and I don't know how this man managed to put all these words on his penis. But he said, this is what, this is what he... And Paul, you haven't heard this before, have you? No, no. It said, <laughs> all for just one night of love. Those words tattooed on a penis, attached to a scrotum in the harbour. Hang on, so did the, did the killer tattoo and then remove the penis? No, 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 pre-tattooed. Isn't that weird? So they get the penis, they take it down to the morgue. And you think about that, like, I've dealt with lots of penises in my life. And <laughs> I know that sounds creepy, but yeah, I actually have. I mean, there are some really fucked up stories about penises. But I'm just trying to imagine how they would have laid the penis out. Because at first they weren't sure whether it was writing or whether it was... Because they thought it was bruising at first. Right. But can you imagine sort of stretching it out and then realising that there's something written on it? It's something that you can't dream about. You know, it's not in movies. This is here happening, like, we're telling this great story. And... <laughs> And then, no, no, this story's, it, this, is, this goes, that's fairly, fairly mild compared to where we're going. And then, a few weeks later, there's a husband and wife walking with their baby in a suburb nearby, and they see a man on the road with his head up against the gutter, and the husband goes over to the body. This is in the early 60s in Sydney, yeah. and he sees this man with the pants pulled down, his sort of shirt pulled above his, his nipples and he's lying there and they think he's, it's a, a result of a hit and run and the guy goes over and he looks down and he realises that his penis and scrotum have been surgically removed on a, on a public street in Sydney. Could he not have done it in a different location and brought the body there later? Or? There was a blood trail. So what had happened was the guy had actually, when he removed the knob, he... Is that, is that okay to say that? <laughs> I mean, the tone was really dark there. When he, removed, <laughs> when he removed the guy's organs, and, and he actually, the, the penis was still dripping as he walked away, and he left a trail. So it's a pretty full-on fucked-up story. The police come, they begin to realise that they've possibly got a serial killer here, because it's happened twice. And then, a few months later, it happened again. And what was happening, this particular guy, he was, he was, he'd been molested as a young child and he felt that he needed to sort of somehow or other rid himself of the demons of being molested. He then vanished to Queensland and this is so surreal, but he bought a shop and above the shop he lived and he used to go to bars and he would bring intoxicated pe or people back and he'd, he'd drink with them He'd get them so intoxicated, then he would sever their organs and then one night the body bled out so badly. What he did, he took the body minus penis down and buried it underneath the shop and then he waited a few days and then he knew who this guy was and he read in the paper that there was, an, in the obituary column, 
that there was a person that was described as him. So he, he, he basically left the body decomposed, but everyone thought that it was actually the murderer that had died, but they didn't know who was the murderer. Is this sort of... Hang on, so the body that was buried under the shop, yep. people thought that... Was the actual murderer, but what? they thought it was sort of the owner of the shop, but right. he was the murderer. And then he actually left, and he read the obituary about himself in the local paper. Right. And he thought, shit, this is okay, I'm, I'm getting away with this. He then goes to New Zealand, and he wants to continue to commit the same crimes, but he has this incredible desire, so he comes back to Sydney. He believes that he can only be in Sydney to commit this horrendous crime. Mm. We're not going to spend the whole night or day talking about this, but the upshot is that he was eventually caught and they never actually found out why he did it in terms of what he actually did with the penises. Perhaps it was so grotesque. Right. But he died in Long Bay Jail recently and he was Australia's longest-serving prisoner and someone that no-one really knows about. So it's quite a fascinating story. So there are so many stories in this country that we just... Because there's so much news happening that we just... You know, they get washed away. And you told this story to a room full of people eating. And they were so, so they were so, <laughs> so shocked. And the head of Telstra came up to me afterwards, and he said, "John, I've just witnessed a masterclass in storytelling," which was very sweet of him. <laughs> I love that you finished with a compliment towards yourself. <laughs> That's really our shot here. Um, the podcast is an interesting phenomenon. It is. Uh, we've talked about Dad's term in general duties, forensics, the fire brigade. For me, the weirdest thing was the fact that during the writing of the second book, Dad mentioned the funeral home uh, that he used to run, as like a family-run business that we used to run. And I'd completely blocked it out of my memory. Like, I'd forgotten that we lived on the premises and worked at a funeral home for years. Uh, it's called Kinsella Funeral Homes, yeah? Um, and you had a story relating to Kinsella that you wanted to yeah, tell Yeah, okay, so... My dad, um, who was a school teacher back in the 1960s and 70s, he taught at a particularly sort of a rough school in, in Sydney, Sydney's Northern Beaches. Yeah. It's called Curl Curl Primary. And back in the 60s, uh, you know, the Italians used to have knife fights at school. That's in primary school. And it was really, really heavy. And they'd graduate to Manly Boys High School, which was such a tough, tough school. On muck-up day, do we still have muck-up days? Yeah. So muck-up days back in the 70s in Sydney... The students would, for example, get a teacher's mini minor. They'd carry it up the stairs to the top floor and weld the doors shut. I mean, that's... And, you know, it, was, it, it, it became sort of crazy. And my poor dad, who was a very tough teacher, he could no longer drive past Manly Boys because his ex-students would throw rocks at the car and it was really, really heavy. But during the time in the 70s, we had the Sharpies. Does anyone know about the Sharpies they, and they had this weird sort of straight haircut and they were really for me they were fucking scary and if you can imagine one particular guy was expelled from Manly Boys and he was sent to the school that I went to which was Beacon Hill High School and his name was Scott Broadway now at this point in the story two things firstly he had a sister called Janine and she was extremely you know, ver she was very, very attractive. I really fancied her, but I never sort of had the courage to go up and sort of, you know, tell her my feelings, being in high school, sort of very awkward. And uh, she was the sister of Scott, but she was sort of diametrically opposed. You know how you can have sort of one sibling that's fucking out of control and then you can have a sister, for example, who's just amazing. You would not know that they were connected. Mm. So years later when Christine and I... So I'm still in the fire brigade. I've got two antique shops and we, I got a job sort of working at Kinsella Funeral Homes and eventually Christine and I were so good at it that we were basically op offered Kinsella Funeral Homes. Back then, just FYI, we were making between ten and $15,000 a day. You know, it's a very, very lucrative business. And I guess I'll just sort of punctuate this sort of session, if you like, with something that is not sort of, Paul doesn't know what I'm about to say, obviously, and he's fucking shitty himself. Uh, because, believe you me, with the podcast, he can he has he edits the podcast. I have so to, yeah. yeah. He has to. I have to. Uh, but in these situations, I know he's, he's thinking, oh, God, Dad, what are you going to say? It's not super bad. It's, it's kind of a little bit sad in a way, but, you know, Christine and I, we were offered the, op the opportunity to sort of have this amazing sort of business, and we had to do a cot death. And there was this little white coffin... I called Christine out from the office. I'm a professional firefighter. I've seen some shit. And I had to wrap this little baby up in a little white coffin. And I won't go into the details of the funeral, but just the mum and dad were there. And it was f 
fucked. It was raining. It was windy. It was everything that could go wrong at a funeral. It was just horrendous. And Christine and I just looked and we just looked at each other and said, we can't do it. We, we cannot possibly. I, I just thought, you know, you've got to weigh things up in life. And that was a really good turning point for us to yeah. just make the decision. And I, 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 I don't want to sort of bring you all down, but, and believe you me, we'll lift you up soon. But <laughs> the thing is, you know, that was that, that, that turning point. But prior to that, um, the owner of the funeral home used to grow marijuana in the quadrangle. And all, and no, it, there were literally forests of marijuana growing in the middle of this funeral parlour. And all the local detectives used to come round <laughs> on duty and smoke. But that's not super unusual, trust me, for the New South Wales Police Force at the time. And all of a sudden, this guy, Scott Broadway, that I hadn't seen in years, he comes into the funeral parlour and it turns out that he'd married the daughter of the owner of the funeral home. He comes in and he's wearing the Comanchero jacket and he's the sergeant at arms for the common sheroes. That's the biker gang, yeah? Fucking oath. Okay. And we're talking <laughs> really fucking scary. He was built like a brick shithouse. He was a monster. Tattered up. Well, we're talking A-grade criminal. And I saw him. And, you know, he was sort of mingling with the, with the police and it was pretty fascinating to think that, you know, there are these types of people that... And his wife was just amazing and sort of, you know, demure and, and lovely. And Do people use that word, demure? Oh, it wasn't... No, it's fine. It's a yeah. nice word. It's just, you know... And, and yeah, so anyway, when he... Uh, just before he went to jail um, for some heavy shit, they, they did a raid on a house, a very normal house in Cromer, which is the suburb very w- where you went to high school. Yeah. And underneath the, the house, they discovered homemade bombs. So he was involved in some really really big stuff that he didn't get to sort of you know follow through and this was sort of that connection with and the funeral industry funeral industry is a very it's it's an interesting industry uh, and if you want to get rid of a body um it's it's pretty simple you just simply put two bodies into one coffin it's that simple aren't, you, the, aren't the pallbearers going to notice a difference it, it might be slightly hip hey <laughs> it might be slightly heavier but uh, you just put it in with a really really emaciated person yeah, but the people who are carrying the emaciated... Which was me. Right. Yeah. You're going to go, wait, they were thin. I mean, no, no, that, that's... No. Because some... I, I'm really hesitant to say this to everyone here tonight, but this, this lunchtime. Yeah. <laughs> that is that uh, there was a particular funeral parlour that used to... And this is really bad and sad and, and fucked, but they used to get rid of their rubbish in coffins. Wait. Yeah. Really? Fucking oath they did. So when you cremate a body, yep. there's some stuff left over, right? Mm, does anyone know about cremation? I know we're not here to sort of bang on about cremation. Just but dicks and burning bodies the whole day. But look, at, look <laughs> I, 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 watched a crem- I watched a cremation. Yep. Um, very, very quickly, if you've got a pacemaker, you can't be cremated because it can explode. Uh, I was doing a... Um, who's heard of Mount Erebus? Where, where the, the, the plane crashed into the, the building in... Yep. The other building, the mountain. Mm. I was working with a guy that was involved in all the, the embalming for um, the Mount Erebus crash and he was working with us and we did a funeral one day and we got a call from the, uh, the people that were just about to put the body into the, the furnace mm. and they realised this guy, there was a lump on his chest and they thought, shit, and they had to get rid of the pacemaker and this guy that I worked with, he just pulled a pen out and he went in and he just used a pen and he just ripped it out. So, you know, that's sort of improvising uh, and, and good, on, good on him. Uh, not, not my, you know, not how I work, but... Yeah, anyway. Jesus. Um, <laughs> I get whiplash sometimes. Um, actually, uh, speaking of family, because uh, the Kinsella family business was a, you know, you were working at a, at a family business. Um, mm. First of all, I can't imagine a reality in which we still had that going on in our lives, and I'm glad we don't. But uh, one of my favourite stories that you've ever told on the show uh, was actually one involving you and mum. Mm. Uh, and this took place in the, what would you say, early 90s? Yep, yep. And uh, it took place largely at a Chinese restaurant, which doesn't exist anymore. Okay, well, that's sort of, you're jumping the gun a little oh, bit. Oh, shit, I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So I was heavily into scuba diving for a long time, and I had a very, very old steel scuba diving tank, really early one. And 
it was just a moment in my life where I thought, it's time to move on. I had this bucket, like a dive bucket with scuba tank, you know, all the gear, the, the goggles, the flippers, but uh, you, the weights. You used the scuba oh, gear. I've been using this stuff for years. Yeah, but you've been using it also in a borderline criminal enterprise. Yeah, right? yeah, I used to illegally dive for, I don't even want to say it, but I used to dive for abalone. <laughs> and and I used to, you know, send them to, to sold Singapore. sold back to restaurants and stuff? And yeah, yeah, did all that. Okay. Um, which is kind of uncool, but... So, so you I had to dispose of the evidence. Had to, had to get rid of the, the scuba gear. So I put an ad in the Trading Post, and I, I asked for a lot of money for this stuff, right. a lot more money than I thought. Get a phone call from this guy, and he just said, I'll, I'll pay you what you ask in cash. He didn't sort of quibble with the amount of money. And it was on the weekend. This guy comes to the door. Christine and I and the kids, we were living in a private girls' school as caretakers, and it was really really nice it was very very secure on on top of this sort of mountain you recall the school yeah it was saint, uh saint something's anglican something yeah and it was just really private and great it was this private 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 yeah one of my favorite saints yeah it was really really good and this guy comes to the door and he was about 40 years of age and he was incredibly incredibly well built and he's just sort of towering over me and we invited him in and he was very matter of fact he's i got the impression that he was maybe military and he was just he was just a man of few words, like me. <laughs> You've been and talking he, for 30 minutes. But and he handed, he handed over the money, and he said, now I've got an unusual request to make. He said, he was on a motorbike, which is fair enough, and he said, I'll give you an address in the city. I'd like you and your wife to come in, maybe have a yum cha nearby. You can park in my security parking spot. And Christine and I, both ex-police, Pretty excited about the money. Seems like a really good deal. Paying top dollar. It's an opportunity to go to Yum Cha. It's called the Marigold. <laughs> now, this is really, really important, this story. It's important for you all to listen to some of the facts here. Remember the Marigold, okay? This is on the weekend. On the Monday, Christine and I, we pack the scuba gear into the back of our Falcon 500, which my dad had given us, which I later sold, and he was really pissed off. <laughs> I said, it was, you gave it to me, and it's a whole long story. So Christine and I, we drive into the city. We have a, were you a baby? I really don't know. Uh, <laughs> okay. Was I, was well, I <laughs> someone was in a pram. It could have been, we had three kids. Hang on, when was Mark born? 80, no... Anne was in 88, so if this was early 90s, you probably had all three of us, I would say. Okay, but one was in a pram. Yeah, probably not. Okay. We drive in to York Street. There's a security car park. We pull into the driveway. The gate opens. And this guy says to us, I want you to park in such and such a spot. As we drive into this car park, we see, it's the second clue for you all, a guy... Um, like a removalist truck, with three men standing there, not working, just kind of hovering. And we're just thinking, this is really going really well, but something's slightly weird about the story. So we park, we open the boot, he appears, folds, uh, you know, hands over the readies. How much money was it, by the way? Well, back in those days, and I don't want to sort of decrease your enthusiasm about this story but I think it was $400 but that's a fair bit of money it's probably over a thousand today okay but someone's offering you a thousand bucks for just for, a, for an old thing you were getting rid and, of and the tank by the way everyone was completely out of test which means he would have to have had it retested to get it filled with air so he then says you know the Marigold restaurant that's just across the road we knew where it was because it was one of our favourite restaurants mm. Christine and I put non-specific child into <laughs> into the pram we walk across and we have a beautiful dinner we come back we leave two years later our phone started to make weird noises like in the movies I think it's called ringing no <laughs> Paul it's called clicking oh wait when you were on the when you pick you could hear things in the, in the background. I didn't know that. That's okay, so it's clicking. This is in old. This is old school. You know, dial-up phones. Yeah. And then one weekend, these two guys in suits appear at the front door of the school. 
We had an unlisted phone number. These were heavy guys. They were from the federal... We'll call them the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. Let's just say that. I don't know what the equivalent today is. These guys were fucking... They were heavy. And they wanted to come into our place and they explained to Christina and myself that we had been under surveillance for over a year. Full-blown full surveillance. And once they realised that... Because can you imagine ex-police rocking up, opening up the back of a car. Remember the guys in the removalist truck? They were undercover police. We, Christine and I, they, the police thought, fuck, we've got some ex-coppers here. They're involved in some fucking heavy shit, which I'll come to shortly. When we went over to the Marigold restaurant, we were up there, they had surveillance. They had a crew. They had a crew the removalist crew. One of the lobsters in the tanks was actually a cop as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was wired up. And, um, and there were some undercover police officers in the restaurant. Guess what? You'll never guess. One of the undercover police officers was Christine's cousin. Think about that. What if mum had recognised her, though? Would that have blown her cover? Or? Could have, but okay. she didn't. Right. Isn't that incredible? So can you imagine Christine's cousin watching her cousin come toward her and knowing the background to this incredible case. Why is it such an incredible case? Because what had happened was that the steel tank, when he bought it off us, was taken to an engineering workshop in Sydney. They put it onto a lathe. They bored the centre of it out. Big job. They then put 10 kilos of pure heroin into the tank. Not in Australia. It was then taken on an anti-surveillance trip all over the world, which is what these top, top drug cartels do to make sure that it's not being followed. Ultimately, they bought this incredible yacht. It was dumped. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. In the ocean, north of Darwin, scuba diving crew out, dive, picked tank up, brought it back to shore, put it onto a light aircraft, and flew it down south. That's the case that Christine and I inadvertently got involved in through an ad in the Trading Post. Isn't that incredible? That's insane. I'm mm. very curious, uh, and I suspect I don't know the answer, but we had an unmarked number for years, like Dad just said. We had, a, we had an unlisted number. Uh, what was it that led to us having a number that couldn't be looked up in the phone book? There was um, a very famous interview that took place on the ABC, and they were interviewing... Uh, I don't know whether you know this story, and they were interviewing ex-police about domestic violence. Does this ring any bells? And I... You know, and this sergeant of police was basically just sort of saying that 
domestic violence was a phenomenon of the western suburbs in Sydney. Does anyone... This is all new. Great. So <laughs> what it was, and I was so incensed. I'd been out of the police force for a long time. Mm. And I just thought, you know, I worked at Mossman, which is the equivalent for those that live in Melbourne of Turak. Okay? It's the... You know, and there's so much grubby shit happening in these supposed, you know, great suburbs, particularly, and it's sort of pressed under a lot. And domestic violence in these suburbs is horrendous. And I was so upset, and I'd been out of the police force for a long time. In fact, I was in the fire brigade, and I just thought, I have to say something. So I called the producer of the ABC, this show, and it was Andrew Ollie, amazing guy, used to do Four Corners, etc. And I said, you know, domestic violence is uh, is not a phenomenon of, 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 it's not sort of, poor suburbs, poor people, it happens in the wealthiest suburbs and it's fucking bad and I ended up being a guest on the show the next day and in closing it was a 20 minute show and at the very end Andrew Wally said to me, and they didn't use my name and it was all pretty sort of, you know, and I, and I was nervous but I felt something had to be said and Andrew Wally said to me, look is there anything you'd like to say in closing? And I said and I paused and these are words that I came to regret and you'll understand why that I had the silent number I said, the New South Wales police force is rotten to the core. Yeah, I fucking said that on national radio. Within hours, our unlisted number rang, and it was an assistant commissioner of the New South Wales police force who said to me, we believe you've been talking to Andrew Ollie. I'm fucking shitting myself because I I realised the ramifications. He said, you've got two choices. You can either come in and talk about it or shut the fuck up. And I said, I'll go for the second option. (laughs) He got our silent number within a very short period of time. Yeah. And I learned a valuable lesson. A long time, a lot of water's gone under the bridge. The number of very, very senior police in New South Wales, and I'm talking incredibly high-ranking, that get in touch with us to say, this is great what you're doing. And because, you know, a lot of time has, has gone by, but there are still things that I could never talk about, particularly involving detectives in the 80s in the New South Wales Police Force, because mm. I'm not stupid. I don't have a death wish. But in 1980s, Sydney and probably Melbourne were so heavy to, to, to be a policeman. And because I was in forensics, you know, I was doing major, major crime on a, on a daily basis. The things I saw, the things I heard, you know, a very, very quick anecdote. We used to have a car dealer in Sydney called Rick Damalian. Has anyone heard of him? His car yard... Can you imagine the best car yard in Melbourne that sells prestige cars? And you just look at these cars and they're all, you know, starting at half a million dollars. Well, on Sundays, the detectives at North Sydney, they operated out of a, like an office block up the road and they had this incredible glass window at the back that went into a back lane and on Sundays, they'd bring in their private cars. And I remember as a young constable looking through the office to the back windows and I could see and it looked like a Rick Damalian car yard. These were cars that were worth ten times their annual salaries. But it was so blatant. They didn't. They they worked. They're above. Who do you go to in, with with corruption? Well, There's internal no, you affairs. Can't, but right. nah. mum, Christine uh, worked in internal affairs. What a fucking joke that was! Not <laughs> that you worked in internal affairs, but the whole concept. And they used to give Christine every Friday as a sweetener an unmarked pursuit car to bring home, which we used to use. We used to have fun in. Which I feel slightly bad because back in the 80s, and this is going to sound dreadfully hypocritical, if you got pulled over by the police, you just showed them your ID and they'd say, you know, off you go. Right. Of course, those days are. Not that I ever sped. (laughs) He did. Um, Dad, uh, let's talk about the heroin again because I feel like a scuba tank full of heroin is a very objectively interesting thing. Mm. Uh, Now, who was controlling this heroin ring? International Syndicate. Right. And they eventually got this guy who was one of the the head guys and he was jailed for 27 years. Okay. Yep. And that's... Like where... The pipeline was clearly running through Australia. Was this a... like International. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It was really, really... It was a major... I mean, they were talking an incredible amount of money, like millions and millions of dollars. And it was... Thank God... I didn't know any of this at the time because mm. it would have been... Pres- what do you do? I mean, yeah. you know, I don't think I... Because can you trust anyone? You know, the thing is, if you call... Who do you call? You can't... If you call certain police, they're going to... You just don't know. You know, it's very, very... The head of the Crime Commission in New South Wales was actually... He's in jail now. He was just... And he was number one. 
So the, the sad thing for me is that occasionally in these stories, Dad tells... You talk about characters like Dunn and all these other people who mm. are these heroic paragons of virtue, and then a couple of months later, I ask you more, for more stories, and you're like, oh, yeah, they ended up in prison, or they ended up dead, or they ended up corrupt. Was, did anyone get through unscathed at all? Apart from you, obviously. A couple of people, but... You're not friends with anyone from the Force? Anymore. No, no, I don't. I don't associate. I'm not, not through choice, but, you know, it's... Look, it's a tough gig. Yeah. And I made a special sort of mention last night to any police, and there were quite a few police in the audience last night. And, you know, I just said, look, it's a... It's, and with no... I'm not lessening anyone else's jobs, but the police force, it's... You know, just imagine dealing with just shit, you know, day in, day out. Yeah. It's, it's, it's tough, and, you know... Christine and I, I'll tell you a very, very... I'm, I'm not capable, really, of telling a very quick story, <laughs> but I'll just say this to you. Christine and I live in a really, really... We live in basically in King's Cross in Sydney, which... What's the equivalent here? Uh, just pure red light. Where? No, there, there really isn't. isn't. Okay. No, you're right. right. So King's Cross, you know, you come out, you come out of the station and you can smell the urine. That's the first thing. You know, it's, there are people doing the methadone walk. It's, you know all the faces. It's really... There are people that are that live on the street. They, there are people that sleep in the same spot and they've been there for years. It's unbelievable. And then you turn a corner and all of a sudden it's gentrified. It's quite weird. There's a guy up there with a walking frame and he's generally pleasant but, and you feel sorry for him. And, he, and he's drinking long necks and, you know, he's just... And he's incontinent and he wears this huge nappy. A few days ago... You haven't heard this story, have no, you? No, I haven't, no. Christine and I, we've just come back from overseas. We walked past him. He threw his urine-soaked nappy at Christine. Okay? I have never seen her move so quickly. It was miraculous. She just missed it. Dripping wet, it would have weighed two kilos. Soaked in urine. I was fucking pissed off. I was really jacked off. You know what I did? I fucking went to King's Cross Police Station. I said, Christine, we have to say something. Just to, just to let the police know, and I'm thinking, God, you know, weighing it up. Police, King's Cross, more important things to know about. We go up to the station, there's a big queue, and I'm thinking, do I really want to go through this whole story with all these people listening? You've got a screen through glass. And then we see two police, massive guys, coming up, and they're, they're carrying their lunch bags. They've just bought some shit junk food. Lunchtime. We start to leave, and I just I, I stop them on the stairs. I said, hey, guys, and they kind of their eyes rolled into the back of their head. Oh, fuck. We're, we want to just get into the station and eat. And I said, guys, and I told them the story very quickly, and they said, what do you want to do about it? I said, we don't want to do anything about it. We just want you to know about it just so, you know, maybe it doesn't, blah, 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 and off we went. But normally I don't worry about that sort of stuff, but when you see someone, you know, that you are very fond of, mm. i.e. your mum, yeah. and it's kind of a really, it was very upsetting. Um, but, look, you know, we tolerate most things up there. Well, it's a weird area. It's I a mean, weird area. A lot of your stories seem to focus on the cross, mm. and one of the main figures in King's Cross uh, during that period was Mr. Asia, is that correct? Yeah, Mr. Asia. Has what? anyone heard of Mr. Asia? He started off as a petty criminal in New Zealand. Just breaking enters, you know, safe jobs, building up, up, up. But he, he was... He was a pretty bad guy, and how he used to deal with his informers, with his, with his, you know, his cohorts, he used to decapitate them. The very first time they, they basically got onto him was in England. Some recreation divers were diving in a pond, and some people had, it turned out it was Mr. Asia, they'd killed this guy, cut his head off, and they had him in a jagger, and they pushed the jagger over the cliff, and it went down, down, down through the water, but it got sort of stuck on a ledge, and some recreation divers come across this jaguar and inside it is a headless body. And that was his sort of MO. And then I remember I was in forensics um, in the mid-'80s mm. and we had this really weird sort of thing where we had to meet at a secret location around midnight, sounds pretty spooky, in a national park. So myself and my colleague, we used to have like a Falcon, again, a Falcon 500, but it was a station wagon. We had all our gear in the back. We go to this sort of non-specific, creepy area up in the um, the national park around sort of... It was the Karingai Chase. Karingai Chase. Yeah. And it was, there was no street lighting. And we meet all the sort of detectives. And it was truly... 
There were no landmarks, nothing. And they had a guy that they'd taken out of Long Bay Jail a few hours before. And we're talking someone really fucking scary. He was cuffed, obviously. And these detectives were around him. And we followed this guy <coughs> into the bush. And as we're walking, with sort of it was, it was pitch black, carrying all our gear. And I was told, being the junior man, to bring a shovel. So we walked for about 150 metres into this dense bush. And then all of a sudden, this guy in custody, fucking scary guy, he says, stop here. We all stand around and then he tells, he points to the ground and he says, dig here. Now this is a guy that said that he'd been told about this in jail. Can you believe that? Can you believe being able to get that type of information and then take us to a particular point at night time under torchlight and then told to dig? That's very specific. Very specific. So I started digging. And I began to... The first thing I uncovered was a spine and I started to work around the spine and I began to realise fairly quickly that it was the remains of a human being. And then as I worked my way up to the top of the spine, of course, no head, and I began to realise that... And it all sort of started to make sense that this was in fact part of Mr Asia, one of the victims. Yeah. We removed the entire skeleton... Just as we're about to leave, all of a sudden, we could hear this noise coming through the bush. And we all just were really, really quiet. And then all of a sudden, it was like a spaceship was coming towards us, this bright light. And everyone's sort of frozen. It's like one in the morning now. This was during the Stuart Royal Commission. And everything was really, really highly, highly confidential. And all of a sudden this bright, super bright light comes towards us and we realised that it was live television, Channel 10, Harry Potter. Not that Harry Potter, but another Harry Potter. (laughs) Not the boy who lived, it was... (laughs) No, because this Harry Potter had a lot of facial hair and he was very famous and the crew had been tipped off by the detectives. You told me one time that they looked way too good at 1am in the morning. The detectives, as it turned out in hindsight, were dressed immaculately. Yep. I was wearing sort of a, you know, some shitty overalls and I'd been digging. I sort of get up and sort of mud all over my face and sort of wide-eyed and all the Ds with their immaculate suits and ties are all standing there. So it was a photographic opportunity. Yep. But what happened was um, it was a part of the, the Royal Commission and the next day the shit hit the fan big time because this was highly, highly confidential. And the detectives, we used to call the detectives in the 1980s the glory boys because it was all about, you know... The glory. About them. Yeah. The glory. Yeah. And uh, so that was an interesting case. But then years later, Anne, my sister, is watching uh, the TV and she calls us. Yes. And she says, I just saw a promo for this episode of Underbelly. Yeah. And it looks sort of familiar and it turns out... Well, Anne was looking at a scene, a promo for Underbelly. Yeah. And there's actually footage of actors and there's an actor in this hole digging out a headless body. And Anne, our lovely daughter, said, Dad, do you, do you know anything about this? Are you aware? Do you, do you know that this sort of thing happened? Did this happen to you in the police force? I said, Anne, that guy in, the, in that film, that's me, which is quite extraordinary. There's, so, yeah. there's an actor out there somewhere who's yeah. played Dad and doesn't actually know it, <laughs> which is so cool. We, we actually rewatched the episode. It was slightly different. It was, it was during the daytime, I think just logistically to make mm. it easier to shoot. Yep. Didn't look anything like you. So they didn't do their research, clearly. Um, I actually... Look, we've got some questions uh, from you lovely people in the audience, and uh, would, uh, would you like to answer some audience questions? Yep. Okay, great. Uh, Unsolicited, I haven't seen these We questions. haven't checked these. Uh, Tegan vetted them a little bit, I think. She didn't. She didn't vet them. <laughs> okay, ready for some unfiltered weirdness. Here we go. Uh, let's see. Uh, John, would you consider going solo for an antiques podcast? Keen to hear more antique stories. Definitely. <laughs> Fuck you. The world, <laughs> the world of antiques is so exciting. I'm working on some things at the moment. I mean, I have got a pair of hairs. Does that make sense? Not rabbits. Hairs. On the 7th of this month, they're coming up for auction in London at Bonhams if you want to check it out. It's so exciting. So, yes, I'm involved. In the, and the antique world is so, so 
fascinating. Well, there was that time that you were at a uh, client's house and you didn't you burst a water main when you were... Oh, that's picture hanging. Picture hanging. Yeah, okay. that's... That's I, a whole I, other I thing, I yeah. I can't afford the, the PTSD. Yeah, yeah, that really yeah. upsets you. <laughs> Have either of you received much blowback from your books, i.e. from the current or former New South Wales police? Uh, 100% positive. Yeah. I have never, ever had a negative thing. In fact, a lot of police are so excited that secretly they contact us yeah. and say, congratulations, we, we, we love what you're doing. And, of course, they'd love to say the things that I say. I mean, we are still relatively prudent. In last night's show, we told a story that... Because these are being recorded and these are actually... You'll be able to hear them yes. down the track. Yeah. But we actually cut a whole um, story out last night. Yeah, we had a story that was so litigious we had to actually yeah. like dump we it actually from cut the feed. it. And that's 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 the level that we, you know, we we we, we do value um, our own security. Yeah. Um, you know, I like I like at this point in my life, I enjoy you know living, not getting shot. <laughs> um, you know, and and but n- never ha- ever have I had any negative comments well no because the penguin legal team are very very good like we literally changed the names of people in fact Mm. in fact last night last night i let something slip accidentally said julian's actual name in front of it was it was heavy it was bad well the thing is you could have covered it but you literally you look you went chalky white it was very intense uh but hopefully they don't tell anyone um it's weird (laughs) i mean all the all the police that are in the book i mean it's some of them have actually reached out Sue reached out Sue, recently, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was an amazing police woman. She's still alive and she's oh God, I tell you what, some of the police women that I worked with um were just some of the blokes that I worked with were fucked. <laughs> like seriously. There was a guy that I worked with on the night shift. He would start at eleven PM in his pajamas. <laughs> and that's not a joke. Think about that. Think about a member of the public coming into a police station and seeing an officer in his fucking pyjamas. That is the contempt this police officer took. And he ended up being incredibly high-ranking. And my mother, because he... I'm not going to go there, but, you know, my mother, she's sweet. She listens to the show. She loves the show. And sometimes I forget that she she calls me. After every podcast, she she writes and says, I loved that podcast, John. Except for the My Dad Wrote a Porno one where... She hasn't. That's actually coming up. We're doing some some stuff with that. Yeah. And that was traumatic for me to write a, a, you know... Piece of erotic fiction. Yeah. And uh, so... And and knowing that my mother would... It's heavy duty. (laughs) You know, there are some things your mothers just are not supposed to, to know. And one of them is inside their son's mind. I'd love to tell you a story about masturbation, but... I'm not going to. But I got caught once. I think it's lunchtime. We not we don't need to tell this. My mum had a sewing room. Shall I tell it? No. <laughs> My mother had a sewing room. Well, who's who benefits from this? My mother had a sewing room and I mean who has a sewing room? No one. And she's got a sewing room and I would have been I can't believe I'm about to tell this story, but he, shall I? Look uh, they wa- clearly want you to. Oh fuck! Uh, well, anyway, so hey, can, can you want to tell like a, like, a, like a tailored version where it's not so bad? That's funny, tailored. That was a pun. No, anyway. So, um, so I'm in the sewing room. You know, I'm have, I'm just you can imagine what I'm doing. And my mother opens the door and she looks down. And my, my mother's a daily churchgoer. Oh fuck! If we, I remember I once said "shut up" as a teenager, and I'll never forget my mother upstairs. She shouted at John. She's screaming. How could you say that? Like, shut up. So that's the sort of that. That was the, you know. So mum, my mum comes in and she's so traumatized <laughs> that. And I, you know what I thought? I thought I'd been caught. Fuck it. <laughs> and I closed the door and just carried on. <laughs> because you know what? I was fucked already. And I thought, <laughs> and that's a true story. That's now. Paul had no that's, idea. That's the worst thing you've ever <laughs> said on the show. I mean by a significant margin. <laughs> oh, my new watch is going off. Hang on a sec. Sorry, Dad got me a new watch yesterday and it's just, uh, it's just gone off. Um, uh, more questions? To yes. just delete that from my fucking head? <laughs> All right, here we go. Uh, John, have you ever considered writing your own books? Uh, yes. I once did a... I started to write a book about a detective who was a Savaloy. Yeah, the sausage thing. Yeah, yeah, the Bertie Savaloy. Correct. I was illustrating it for you. And Paul did some illustrations. Yeah. It's very difficult to write a book. As my father used to say, 
The world is paved with good intentions. And it's fucking hard to write a book. I did a few pages. I was really excited. But the problem with the Savaloy detective is that he used to go to dances and no one saw him. Anyway, that's all. That's fucked. Okay, so thank right. you. For well, last three oh, minutes fuck. have been very weird. Um, John, are you planning on sticking with the antiques or is there another business venture slash career on the horizon? No, I'm doing antiques till I die. Okay. I've just shut down my picture hanging business and my mother asked me to hang a painting. I said, Mum, I'm sorry. I'm not, just, I'm not doing it ever again because I've had so many traumatic things happen during picture hanging. Like we're talking terrible things. But anyway, okay. that's for another podcast. Here's a question. Uh, it says fun question at the start. Uh, just to, who says their question is fun? You would do that. You would say, <laughs> this is a great story. This is a fantastic story. Um, fun question. Out of Paul and John, who is the Hamish and who is the Andy? <laughs> well, I don't know either of those people. Yeah. I've heard of them, but that, I don't know their... That's a classic Andy answer, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, serious question: Thoughts on the arrest of Danny Lim? Are you up with this case? No. Neither am I. Is it no? Wow. Well, would someone like to expand on Mr. Lim? No, it's all right. You know what's great? I can actually cut that bit from the podcast because, <laughs> uh, John, with all the jobs you have done, if you had to change, which job would you love to do again? Had the chance, sorry. So yeah, if you could go back and do one of your jobs again, which one would it be? Not including antiques, one of the emergency services jobs that you've had. With no disrespect to firefighters, I wouldn't do that. Because basically the fire brigade and and just, you know, I'm just telling you how I feel because I was a ladder driver. They used to call us the koala bears of the New South Wales fire brigades because we were protected species. And And without a joke, without, without word of a lie, everyone, for four years as a ladder driver, I never used the ladders in anger, ever. How do you use a ladder in anger? That's a, it's an expression which means you just oh. didn't use them. I thought you meant like hit someone with no, the ladder. No, no, no. But you know what? You know, I used to get them to work at the beginning of every shift. I was very, very... Because you know that if you ever do have to fucking use your ladders, it's, it's a fucking job. But we didn't. And, you know, you'd be in bed, two in the morning, pissing down rain, midwinter, buffeting winds. The bells would go off and they'd say, pump only. And you're a ladder driver and you go, sweet Jesus. And you go back to sleep. Okay, so, you know... The f- incredibly important job, the fire brigade. We, we're coming into summer. Fucking scary. Yeah. But, you know, it's a reactive job. You don't go out and create. Unless you're a pyromaniac. And there are people, there are fires that go out and light fires. True. But in the police force, yeah. you can, if you're a good police officer and you've got a good instinct, you can, you can go out there and, and really and look for it. I don't know. I think... I worry about the police force today. I kind of feel they're just getting so snowed under in just protocol and, and paperwork. Real policing is getting out there amongst it, using your intuition and, and just being a police officer. And it's a really, really important job. So if I had my time again, I would have possibly stayed with the police force. Okay. For until I retire. But technically speaking, you could become like a mall cop or something, right? Oh, fuck. Are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> you a a little, mall cop. You get a little, uh, you get what one of those um, segues, you know, right around. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Fuck. It's <laughs> <laughs> a look at, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. All right. Uh, next question. Oh, good one. When is the movie coming out? More importantly, who will be playing your characters? Now, we have signed NDAs. Uh, about anything... Scr- I'm not saying it's a movie, but like, like, if, if anything were to happen, uh, I don't think we'd play ourselves, but we would... I very can't m- act at all. Oh, you no, I can't. I, I can't remember lines. You'd be okay. No, be shit. I'd have to be an extra. <laughs> yeah, but that could be every extra. No, right? but I'd love to be an extra. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know how they'd control me. <laughs> Dad, if the money was good enough, you'd find a way to learn those lines. I know that. Yeah. But, I mean, who would you want to play yourself in a screen iteration? Um, in, in a perfect world, yeah. and I don't want to sound sort of dr- too dramatic here, but George Clooney. <laughs> you laugh. I mean, I think he's fairly handsome. Uh, you know, and we're sort of, you know, anyway, fuck. I mean, well, you know, I mean, if at least, yeah, fuck, whatever. I once said to Dad, Russell Crowe is interested, and Dad went, no. He actually said, Russell, Russell Crowe did say, he, he did say he'd play me, didn't he? He said he was interested. Yeah, yeah. but... You know, someone would have to play me now as at this age and someone would have to play me in my early 20s. The thing is, you were 21 and there's no, like, I can't think of any... Oh, no, there's a few 21-year-old actors we could cast, but mm. who would you cast as present-day me? Alex Dyson. 
Um, probably an international actor. Okay. But I'll tell you one thing important about if this ever moves forward. I hope that the actor playing me would... I hope that they kind of meet with you and spend some time with you and try and oh, they you have know, get into the... Yeah, get into character. Get into the character. Because yeah. I think I'm moderately unusual. How would you get an actor... <laughs> how would you get an actor to... Spend a day with me. Spend just a day. In the ute, driving around. Right. Um, I've had friends in my ute occasionally... And we get an antique call and the person next to me would say, you are incredibly rude to these people. And I'd say, yes, because I'm dealing with fuckwits. <laughs> Absolute fucking tools. The fucking shit that I... The, oh, fuck. The calls I get from just complete fucking idiots. It's amazing. If Dad got a oh. call right now, you'd all see it happen. He just turns If we had a real call like and a you could actually listen to it... and. It's incredible. You'll have some... You, you, you're so... You know, people say things to me like, we've just had a garage sale... Yeah, and we've got all this stuff left over, and and I say, were there hundreds of people at the garage sale? Yeah, and do you really believe that there's anything of any value left? Yeah, no. <laughs> oh, if you don't buy it, we're putting it on the cleanup. These are the sort of. I once drove fifty kilometres to tell someone that I didn't want to buy their fucking Barbie doll. <laughs> no, seriously, because sometimes I delight in masochistic tendencies where I can actually I know I'm torturing myself Christine says why are you doing this you know where this is going to end can I tell one very quick antique story yes absolutely yeah real quick I get a call from a lady she tells me the most extraordinary story about all you know these antiques I have to drive from one end of Sydney to the other I literally drive to the Hawkesbury River I'm going down this gravel road the ute is literally sliding out of control towards the water i stopped it going in the river she was the last house on the right i drive there's an amazing house i'm really excited because i can see treasures and i'm thinking fuck it it has been worth my while to drive probably 70 kilometers she opens the door i'm sort of hinting to sort of come in and look at the treasures that i can see through the window and she says oh no 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 what I'm going to show you is it's around the back. We go around the back. There's a fucked sideboard <laughs> leaning against the house. I opened one of the doors. I could see inside the house. It had no back on it. And it had no back legs. It was leaning against the house. And I said, but what about all the good stuff? Oh, no, that's not for sale. That's an example of, of the life and times. However... There are extraordinary things that happen as well. Yeah, and sometimes actually Dad gets listeners calling up. We've had quite a few people. Oh, and also you will go to prominent members of you know the political sphere. You go to their houses, and at the end of the antique deal, whether you've been rude or not, he plugs the show. Like he will Always. plug the show, <laughs> and he gets them to listen, and he brings them on board. Um, uh, look, I, I have to say it's it's been really really nice uh, being back on stage uh, with all of you here. It's been really nice working with you, Dad, throughout lockdown, but we're so happy it's over and we're so happy to be back out there. We're going to be doing more live shows very soon. Um, But could I please get you all to give a huge round of applause again for my dad, John, please. And, And thank you very much, everyone. I really, really appreciate you coming. It's a, it's a big thing and it's, it's exciting. We did the show last night. I was actually weirdly more nervous today for some reason and I started to kind of I, th- I thought I was actually unraveling but anyway that's you know there's a reason that I don't take drugs there actually is a reason you are drugs you know I, I I've I've um I once when I was stoned as a teenager I ate a whole bottle of Vegemite <laughs> and it was so beautiful and then I ate a chicken the problem was that the chicken wasn't alive that's not that's weird the chicken was actually it had already been eaten so there were just the bones the carcass and then I saw it I thought fuck this is incredible so I then ate the rest of the like I, I think I ate everything I may have eat, even eaten the paper and so I thought you know what stay away from drugs great and also I'd like to say as a father working with my son is thrilling so let's give it up for Paul oh. the father-son relationship is bloody fantastic it's really great it's, it's coming you know I mean now 
Yeah. We're going to be downstairs uh, selling copies of Electric Blue. Uh, they are literally oh. the last copies in stock. They've been sitting in our house all of lockdown because there wasn't time for an actual book launch. So Tegan's going to kill me if we don't sell all these copies. Please come and buy a copy. Uh, get a photo with Dad and I. We'll actually sign stuff. We'll say hello. We'll kiss babies. Hope there's no babies here. Um, and also on Monday night uh, over at Poly Bar in Brunswick, uh, I am hosting uh, a book launch with my friend Josh, who was actually the best man at uh, the Paris wedding that we had. And uh, he wrote a book with William Shatner. So Poly Bar, Monday night, that's another live thing we're doing. Uh, we love this show. We love doing it. Please keep listening and we'll keep doing it. And uh, thank you so much for coming, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.